We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week. This has never been a closed case. It's been a nightmare. It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride. It's just like she fell off the face of the earth. There, there isn't a day that goes by that, that they don't think about Susan. And... I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanert. June of 1986, she had, she graduated from high school, was very happy, had a lot of friends, then went to college and she had a lot of friends there, was loving it, but she missed living at home and so she ended up moving back home for what was intending to be like a year. Was that correct? Right, right. Kind of like a cap year because she obviously wasn't ready for college. And she had a lot of friends, but she just was a homebody. So she came home and she just tried to get things going, you know, with a job there. Did she keep in touch with a lot of her friends from college? Yeah, she she did. But then she started to waver a little bit and then try, you know, she was getting depressed because she couldn't find a job. And um, she did float around on jobs, which is pretty typical, I think, of teenagers. She did finally land a job at Kmart, and she was fine with it. And then she, what I didn't mention in the timeline before, is that she also had another job, Body and Soul, and um, that was in the St. Croix Mall. So Kmart was attached to the St. Croix Mall, and um, Body and Soul was a little shop dress shop that was within the St. Croix Mall. How long did she work at those jobs? She had been there for probably around six months, around the holidays of 1987. So I'm thinking she had them for at least six months. And she seemed fine with them. Um, you know, she did work, um, I think she worked at J.C. Penney's in um, Sunray in the shopping mall for a little bit. That one was that one was a lot shorter. She wasn't happy there. She wanted to be more in the perimeters of home, so she liked being close to home. Then that was at which point you'd mentioned that she had a boyfriend who had been a few years younger, but things were going right. well. Then things kind of, it sounded like things had taken a turn because she was ready to get married and he just wasn't in that place. Yeah, I mean, at that age, you know, you have all those social pushes to you're either in college or you're thinking of marriage or something. And he was my age, so he would be 16 and she's 19. So, you know, he was in high school, so it wouldn't make any sense for to get married. And he certainly wasn't on that track, so that's what separated them. So that's when she started to show a depression and around Christmas of 87. So... That last voice you just heard? I would like to introduce you to Susan's sister, Christine Swiddell. In my opinion, Christine and her mother have the hardest job in the world. They have had to wake up every single day for nearly 30 years without their sister and daughter, not knowing where she is or what happened to her. And that has been all-consuming of their lives. In the short period of time I've known the Swiddells, I would consider them as two of the strongest people I know. Three words I would describe them as would be patient, kind, and heartbroken. 
These circumstances came upon them nearly 30 years ago, on an unsuspecting snowy Tuesday night, and life has demanded of them that they endure ever since. Christine and I were able to connect thanks to the Jacob Waterling Resource Center. She's been able to share a lot of information about Susan and their lives. Susan had graduated from Stillwater High School in 1986. You can see a photo of Susan at her high school prom on Facebook. She's wearing an ankle-length dress with a pink satin ribbon around her waist to match the color of the flowers in her bouquet and her date's corsage. Her smile and eyes are bright and sparkling, just as they are in every photo I've seen of her. Susan had applied to and been accepted by the University of River Falls in Wisconsin. And in the fall of 1986, she started her first semester. Christine said Susan was studying psychology and foreign languages, that she initially loved living in the dorms and had many friends in college, just as she had in high school. But she just wasn't ready yet to live away from home. So she dropped out and moved back home, worked a few different jobs, and eventually settled, as Christine said, at Kmart in a dress shop called Body and Soul. When things weren't working out and heading in the direction she wanted with her boyfriend, that was when Christine noted a dip in Susan's mood around Christmas of 1987. That Christmas, she was really down and depressed. She just, that went right into the new year. And then um, now we're coming into um, January of 1988. Her mood had gone up because the first week, um, or I don't know, everything happened so fast. So had to be literally right after the holidays that Sue and I went to a dance club called Bumpers. And I'm not sure if that was New Brighton or St. Anthony or Little Canada. I'm thinking it's Little Canada. And we were just, she just, her mood just switched. She, she seemed in a better, you know, place. It was just her and I and dancing like every, you know, just having a really good time with everybody else our age and nothing out of the ordinary. She's just being silly Sue. So everything seemed fine. It's just then when we went back to Bumpers, it had to have been, like I said, the time frame is when I look back at it. I mean, I was 16. I, I thought it was a longer time frame, but when I now look at it, it's, it's only like a two, two and a half week. Um, time frame, so things happen fast. So she's, um, when we went back to Bumpers, this is when we met and he was a very popular guy at Bumpers. Person of interest number three, the Bumpers guy. And she danced with him and he just but he seemed, I don't know, to me almost, I just got a sense that he was really fast, maybe because he was more city-like or something. I mean, we were real country girls. And, you know, I mean, it's not like like almost way out or anything, but we were just really small-town girls. So anything came across a little bit faster. So he just seemed faster, and he, he has his eyes on Sue. So... So they danced a lot, and then Sue danced with somebody else. You know, her mood just spiked up. You know, I think it just all she needed was just some fun again. And just, you know, and her and I were getting along really well. And, I mean, you know, we had a typical teen relationship. So it was 
you know, you could fight over clothes, you could be fine the next day, and then it's to the jewelry thing, and, you know, it's just some typical teenager stuff. So her and I were just, it was just nice to see her out of her depression and then be smiling and happy again. As I spoke with Christine about this time in her and Susan's life, something became apparent to me. Around this time that I was interviewing her, I had actually been spending significant time re-listening again and again to filter through interviews I had already done so far to see if I could do one thing. I was looking to gain more clarity on the men who were coming in and out of Susan's life. Because we have the Arizona guy, the habitual liar, the guy from Lionel Lakes who Jesse mentioned briefly and who had been cleared, but then we have post-it notes with various names on them, some of which may or may not have been on the chat lines. We have the mysterious phone call Susan was getting at work, reportedly from someone named Dale. Now we have this guy she met at Bumpers, and then Christine mentions this. You know, she was getting calls, and there was also somebody that was coming into the dress shop, apparently, and um, bothering her, but nobody knew who that was, and was that a separate person? Is that a person at the gas station that, you know, I, is there, it's always been a question if there's one person or two people, I mean, it just gets all confusing. Um, we, we just, uh, we don't know anything, so, um, the holidays are just really rough here, so. So we also have someone who is bothering Susan at her other job, Body and Soul, a dress shop located in the same mall as the Kmart. What Christine expressed at the end there is exactly what had been becoming apparent to me around that time that I interviewed her, as I was listening and re-listening to my interview so far. It seems that the known facts surrounding the men who were coming in and out of Susan's life during the two to three weeks prior to her disappearance are muddled and clouded with ambiguity. What I mean by that is if you take those descriptions of people I just listed, they could all be a separate person, or I could be describing the same person in a couple of different ways. Was the Arizona guy or the habitual liar the same person as the bumpers guy? Which one of them had Susan written their name on a post-it note? And did she meet any of them on the chat lines? Which one of them was calling her at work? And who was bothering her at the dress shop? Like Christine posed, was it one person or two or was it three? And therein lies a 30-year frustration, plaguing an entire family, freezing them back in January of 1988. Even though time itself is cutthroat and demanded Christine and her mother move on, continue ticking along with it, proceed like soldiers at the same steady pace year after year. Despite this, their hearts are still stuck back in January of 1988. There's another element to this is when Sue was having, I'm just going to jump over to Martin Luther King Day. My mom and her had lunch together and she was bringing up a Dale, but she was, you know, also talking about as well. So that's Dale. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat everything that I'm just, you know, I'm a sibling looking for her sister. Yes, but not everything was perfect. She actually mentioned in that conversation that 
Dale was a stripper. And my mom had, of course, she had all the, you know, red alerts on. And she said, I want to meet him right away. And she agreed to it. So I just, I don't know where her mind was at that time. Like I said, things were going really fast. There was these men that were coming into her life. And she was also into 1976 um, calls. And like I said, she was fine before we went to bumpers and we when we were at bumpers but something went really fast um and super fast that um she was starting to call people and everything and and the police tried to get records of this and back then you couldn't do it they were trying but they couldn't they couldn't get the records for it and again the dress shop and the gas station did not have cameras at that time so we don't have anything to show up on any screen. So we're just going strictly about what people were seeing, sensing, and, you know, the gas station attendant had said that what she saw, so the wavy hair, the, you know, the car description, because I had mag wheels, which, you know, I mean, that, I don't know how common those were, but... The car description fit, but you also have to think that is blizzard whiteout conditions, and she's going by what she's seeing out of a little window. So there's so many questions. There's there's no answers, <laughs> just questions. Christine gave me a description of the normal daily events that occurred on January nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight. She was 16 years old at the time. She said that the day began and she went off to school while Susan and her mother went to their respective places of work. During the day, the weather began to change and severe weather was predicted for later that night. Her mom took the early bus home from her job at the University of Minnesota. That afternoon, Christine made it home from school and did as she always had. She ate a snack and watched Little House on the Prairie. It started snowing as expected. Susan was supposed to work until approximately 9 o'clock that night. The weather was getting worse, and Susan called home at some point, stating she was worried about the weather and driving home. Christine spoke to her and told her not to worry. Then her mom also spoke with her and told her to take the main road, Stillwater Boulevard. Christine makes a specific note to mention that Susan is terrified of storms, really of any kind. Susan called one more time before she left work and said she was heading straight home. That is the last time they heard from her. What happened next is based on information from the gas station attendant. Christine and her mother have always followed the words of the initial interview with the gas station attendant. I have not seen the original police report myself, but of course Christine has, and in describing what happened, she states that Susan pulled into the station from Stillwater Boulevard, went into the gas station and told the gas station attendant she was having car trouble, and asked whether she could leave her car there. Then Susan stopped and spoke to a man and got into his car. When the car was looked at, it was without question it had been tampered with, thus the reason why Susan had car trouble that night. Christine also makes another distinction when discussing the gas station attendant and what she saw that I had not thought of before as a possibility. So the gas station attendant had reported that a car had followed Susan into the station's parking lot, but it is not known if that was the same man and car that Susan ultimately got into, 
because it was blizzard whiteout conditions. Since it was blizzard whiteout conditions, the car behind Susan could have simply been hovering close to the car ahead of it for better road visibility. From there, we know that Jesse found the vehicle at the station later that night. I found some previous audio I had of Jesse discussing what happened the next morning. Interestingly, as I was going through and filtering through all these interviews, I think the person who he's referring to is actually the same guy as the bumpers guy. And not only did, you know, he show up the morning when they didn't, uh, they said that neither one called him, but when they called their dad to come and we got to go find Susan, she didn't show up. He even jumps in the car and goes with dad. And I think Chris to Wall or Kmart to find out what the heck happened, you know. And that's typical of somebody, if you, if you research this at all, that somebody involved other than, I mean, they try to involve themselves too much in the search where I would just be worried I'm going to let the cops do their job and so forth. I think that's what most people do. And it's proven that, you know, like, uh, what's his name, uh, Peterson or, yeah, out in California. I just, that's when it pops to my mind. It's, you know, he involved himself a great deal with the investigation. Um, it's, you know, where could she be? Where could she be? And the reason is, is that now he's on top of it. He knows everything. He knows what the cops are looking at and what they thinking he's suspicious, uh, you know, um, but they do that just so they're on top of everything and they know everything that's going on related to the uh, search for the missing person. And he did that. Did he ever, Was he, well, I don't know if he was ever asked or was it ever determined what he was doing the night before? Oh, I don't recall. <clears throat> I think it was. I think... I think he was at a friend's house doing something. If I'm not mistaken, I think he was. And so he got an alibi. Based on his friend. Yeah, yeah. Pretty sure that's the way it happened. Did he have mechanic skills? I can't remember if you told me that or not. I don't know. I don't... I don't know. He went to... Well, I don't, you know, once again, you, you reflect and you look back on all that stuff. And, okay, so now these are the new possibilities. Why would he, I mean, he could have got her anytime, any place that he wanted. So he wouldn't have to do all those, you know, tricks, so to speak, to get her to pull over and and do these things. So, Well, that was the only thing that I haven't been able to in my mind, just kind of makes sense of was I keep thinking if her abductor knew that he was going to take her and he knew her in some capacity, why would he have gone to the trouble of loosening the petcock? I mean, couldn't he have just been like, hey, I'll pick you up from work and then she gets in this car? Like, why did they have, why did he have to get her to the gas station? There you go. I mean, no, it's, it's legitimate and I've thought about that a hundred times, you know, and those are the oddities. You think you got it, and then all of a sudden you come up with something like that, and you go, no, no, that's right. That that blows everything else out of the water. But it's, you never know what they were thinking. Maybe, you know, it was her and him, and and she didn't want to go home. She told her mother, you know, that I'm going to be going out tonight because I don't think they liked him. I think that was, you know, 
public information, if you, if you will, that they didn't like him. So he wasn't going to say, she wasn't going to say, I'm going out with this guy and, uh, and then listen to her argue about it for 10 minutes. So, but it's always been my experience that when you, you finally solve something, that it's the farthest reach and thing you could possibly think of that really brings it together, the, the whole case together. You got to go for that far-reaching thing and say, well, that's, that's pretty pretty weird that that would happen that way, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I'd also read in your daughter's paper, and I don't know if um, you know anything about this, but she said that Susan had... I was confused about what we do know about what Susan's intent that night was because we know that she told her mom that she'd be home at some point. And then it sounded like she'd also had plans to go out, go out with her ex-boyfriend. Then he called her about an hour before she got off work, which that put it at 8 p.m. And he'd said he, they weren't going to meet up. But then earlier that day, her ex-boyfriend's cousin had said that Susan had said that she had plans to go out with a guy she just met. And I'm just confused. I guess I'm just curious your thoughts on all of that. I don't recall any of that. I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't happen, of course, but uh, they were on the outs and the uh, heart was broken over that. I remember that. And he had a real tough time breaking up with her. And... As I was traveling through this time period in my mind, imagining what was happening, I was thinking so many things. Susan was a homebody and a bit lost at 19. Not entirely sure who she was, or what she wanted to be. She was going out trying to meet new people, searching, seeking out something to satisfy her own question of what's next for me. This sounds like all of us at age 19. But at 19, we are technically an adult. The law declares that suddenly, at the single dawn of a new day, we're different. An adult now. Suddenly, we're supposed to be completely aware of the consequences of any decision we do or do not make. Society has created this superficial separation between age 18 and age 19, but real life seems to demonstrate time and time again that this distinction applies in some instances, yet not in others. In my opinion, the law has failed Susan Swaddell in this regard. At least as it relates to her young, innocent 19-year-old life. Had she been a different age, her case would have garnered more attention. But she turned 19, and so overnight she became an adult. And because the gas station attendant saw her willingly get into a vehicle on a whiteout, conditioned blizzard-like Tuesday night, I would mention, well, for those reasons, society as a collective unit, we've ignored this case. How could we let Susan slip through the cracks like this? Well, she was involved with choir, bell choir, caroling, you know, um, mom Sue and I would go caroling and I was involved with the choir too, but she had a lot of friends there at the church, really a lot more there than that was just her base. So she had home and then she had church. So, I mean, we lived right downtown, like almost so we could just walk to everything. So she was, she was always over there and, just very involved with everything. 
There is a particular piece of information that stuck out to me from my interview with Christine so far, especially when taken in combination with another fact that she shared, which was that Susan was afraid of storms and bad weather. The piece of information that stuck out to me relates to the direction that the car took as it left the gas station. We lived, um, if you know where the bank is, we lived literally across the street. So um, it was a little white house with green shutters, and we lived right across from there. So everything was all on the main street. So like I said, she lived at church. So Do you know which, uh, and the, tell me which gas station was it that she had pulled in at and, that night? Um, it wasn't... Um, in downtown Lake Elmo, it was the gas station right outside of Lake Elmo, is on Stillwater Boulevard and Manning Avenue. And so it was that corner. It's on the outskirts um, of Lake Elmo. So, I mean, it's still considered Lake Elmo, I think. Um, Stillwater, Lake Elmo, just uh, she had gone left towards <laughs> downtown because that was where you guys had lived. So, right. direction, because you'd said at the end of your timeline, where did you say it? She stopped, um, got the car, went in the direction of your home, but she never right. got home. And so that car had must have gone left down that road. Yeah, and that's Stillwater Boulevard. So that's what the gas station attendant told um, Jesse that the car went in the direction, um, that direction, and that would be direction of downtown Lake Elmo. Yep. So we know Susan was afraid of storms and that it was a blizzard. We know from last episode that we are fairly confident Susan was in a car with someone she knew. That car left the gas station headed in the direction of downtown Lake Elmo, where her home was located. When I put these things together, despite all the whirlwind of men who had entered her life at the time, I still question whether this was someone local who she knew. Maybe someone she did not know extremely well and that was why he had to tamper with her car. Because she wouldn't just get in his car at any time. But he knew her well enough, just well enough, that she'd take a ride home with him in a scary blizzard when she'd had car trouble. There are a lot of people involved, so it could go in any direction. Um, it may be it may be maybe somebody else. And there was, uh, um, right by the phone, um, we had found uh, a map, and the police have this map, and it says it looks like a meeting place or something, and it it has a named Brian on it. So is this one of the 197? Or I don't know. It's all up in the air. And, you know, at the same time, we talked to her that night. It's blizzard conditions. She detests storms. And um, she wanted to get home. She's afraid of weather like that. So, you know, for her to get into a car and then they're going in the direction of home. And then I learned this. Was that you said that they'd found not only her license, but in her car? Right. Yep. Her license, her glasses, which really shocked me. Um I mean, I suppose anybody, you know, I mean, of course, you know, at that time, if you're over, I'm just going to say quickly, if you're over 18, you were a runaway. So they immediately thought she was a runaway, which if you knew how close we were, 
it would just be baffling to you that she'd want to get away. It just, it didn't make any sense to me. And, um, but her glasses, that doesn't even make sense to me. But her ID, you know, some people would say, okay, maybe she wanted to get away and everything. And, you know, a lot of teenagers do. But Sue was incredibly <clears throat> sentimental person. I mean, the only way you'd know what is if you knew her. And all of her friends knew it. She's, our bond was really tight. And I know the tightest bonds, some people just need to get away. But, yeah, I mean, it's little things like that. That's a big thing to me is her glasses. I mean, she's extremely nearsighted. So because those are the things that come together. It just doesn't make sense. Because when I heard it, um, it just floored me. I was bad enough. I mean, my thought was that she, as it got later and later, that I was, my fear was that she was in a snow drift freezing to death. I mean, it just, it hit me so hard. All I wanted to do was go run out on the roads and find her. I mean, it didn't make any sense. I thought she was frozen somewhere. You know, my mom and I were in just terrible shape. And then when, you know, when we called the police, they found her car that next day. And, uh, you know, Jesse found us. He was the first one on scene. So, and they found those glasses and the ID. And when they came to the house, it was just hell. remember falling to the floor. I went up the steps, you know, to my room and I didn't make it. It just was horrible. Because you knew it in your heart that something was not right. Well, it was terribly wrong. Did she wear her glasses all the time, or were they? Would she bring them with her and wear them like at certain times? No, they were not reading glasses. They were worn all the time. She did have she did have contacts, but she didn't like them. So then she went back to her glasses. So some people may have seen her without glasses. She was shifting in and out of contact, but she had told me she hated them and that they're sore and everything, and went back to her glasses. So, do you believe and trust everything that the gas station attendant has reported? Oh, I wish, I wish there was a camera. And I, I know this woman, after I had read some of her reports, I know she was trying so hard. I felt so bad for her because, you know, she didn't know what was happening out there. Um, and it was so, so cold. Um, I trust her because, you know, she had um, worked there for quite a few years and people knew her and... Um, I trusted her in a small town. So, um, yeah, I trusted her because she felt so bad. And I felt bad for her because as soon as she found out Sue was missing, then she felt, she felt horrid. And, um, wish she had gotten some more details, but you're, you know, when you don't know what's going on, she did, I think, as, um, at times more than, I think other gas station attendants would do. I think what really threw her off is how underdressed she was. You know, she was seen in an outfit 
at work. And then she was, um, this is what doesn't make sense, is that she had changed and she didn't just change into something warmer or whatever. For somebody who was so concerned about the weather, she changed into a skirt. So I don't, I don't understand that either. It doesn't make any sense to me because that goes against what, you know, it's like you, if she wants to come home, I, I don't know. That's been the confusion for 29 years. I don't know. Everybody in the family wonders what in the world was going on because if there was, if there had been a date planned after work or something and the snowstorm came and she, you know, all I know is that when she was on the phone, she was incredibly concerned about the weather. She was talking to me, but then she kind of pushed me off the phone and got mom on the phone and she was very concerned about her route. You know, because she would take the route behind, sometimes a lot of times behind the gas station where the airport is and come up through that way. Sometimes she did that, but mom says, no, 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 stay on Stillwater Boulevard just for safety reasons and that just to make sure that people can see you when you're driving because it was too, that road in the back was, you know, there's not enough cars there. And if you're going to have an issue, you're um, in that kind of weather, you want to be seen. So she just continued to, that's what the gas station attendant says. She just came in from Stillwater Boulevard and she's having that car trouble. And If you know anything about what happened to Susan Swiddell or anything that could be relevant, please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there by going to facebook.com slash stillmissingpodcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it. Next time on Still Missing. But, you know, in the frenzy of everything, you know, we just call whoever's on the list. He came the next day and he came with that car. Thank you for listening to Still Missing. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have suggestions for how to make the podcast better, please email us at hello at stillmissingpodcast.com.